0: everybody, Andrew Holitech here. <clears throat> Welcome to It's Night Club mm-hmm. Podcast yeah. where I am in um, Sedona having a ridiculously good time with uh-huh. uh, 50 of the weirdest people I've ever met. Uh, so we are. And um, yeah, we've lost a few in vortices, um and the like, <laughs> but we're still here. And we have this extraordinary opportunity to... Um, a few questions mm-hmm. off this luminary, Stephen O'Barrish, who really doesn't require any introductions. No, and so what I want to do is start with just a few questions and, and, um, and start with one that was a, a tip that was shared with me where um, a teacher once suggests when you speak to someone who really knows, you should ask questions the answers of which will change your life. Uh, that's, very, that's really, I think, mm-hmm. very interesting because then it's like, okay, what are the pith questions? And so, um, let's take a deep dive into that pool right away and begin with, <clears throat> Stephen, what is your favorite color? Yeah. Blue. <laughs> Wasn't that easy? I
1: deep deep
0: blue. blue. Maybe Prussian blue, but eh, more like midnight blue. Yeah, that was easy. So, <laughs> here's an easier one. When you were talking... Um, just now. What what occurred to my mind that is, it's one of the narratives I think we've been circumambulating that maybe we can unpack a little bit and that is, in your view does mind exist in the universe Mm. or does universe exist within the mind?
1: Yes. (laughs) And (laughs) it's one of those questions because any ultimate question, we're asking ourselves, here's the hole, we'll call it as if we could do that. But suppose the hole is that uh, outside of the uh, the dinner place is a nice globe, right? The earth, yes? So we're wanting to ask a question like, well is it this way or that way? So you've got a map that's going to model that reality in one or other view. And the Nature of reality is that you can't have a lower dimensional, a simpler, a flat-out map or explanation that doesn't have tears in it if you're attempting to uh, describe a higher dimensional reality. So, if you think about it, in map terms, you've got the uh, the map. Say you try kind to of spread a flat paper over the surface of, of the Earth. What do you get? Kind of wrinkles, right? You're really trying to make it fit, it tears. And that's true of every possible map that you can do. But you can always remember have a local map where it doesn't tear. You make a smaller map anywhere you want, but it's only a piece of it. So and this is where the idea of complementarity comes in, is that you can't have a single map that gets it all right by this uh, theorem, essentially, to me, it, it, it's uh, I think related to the gibble. Theorem as well of yeah. trying to describe a, a complete system and, well, it has to have contradictions in it. Kurt Gurt. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. And uh, I, I think this geometric idea is the same concept, is that trying to map a higher dimensional reality, yeah. and we know yeah. it's higher dimensional in the sense that there are m- many elements that, that are not treated in physical uh, science, or even in physical reality, we presume that why should there only be this thing called physical reality, which we only know about indirectly through our senses, etc., right? Why shouldn't it be that there are other many more dimensions, maybe more than we can conceive, but certainly uh, all you need is an infinite set of those dimensions, and you can't have a finite account. So, let's let's embrace that concept and say all right, so we have both and so how do we have both? Yes, somehow we are contained in the world, right? And, that, and that's sort of easy to see by looking at uh, the history of life on earth, right? You know, it's, uh, over, you know, the last 5,000 million years, things have happened, changed geologically and gradually life forms have developed, and gradually these brains have developed, and gradually we're having conversations about it. Now, that seems like, from that perspective, it makes perfect sense that that's all. The physics, the material, whatever that is, is first, and mind develops out of that, okay? But it may not feel quite right, yes? But that makes sense there, right? Brains have got a lot to do with our minds, right, so you can see, well, uh, we didn't have minds uh, before we had brains, or before we had planets, so back when we just had a lot of star stuff, right, but, so that's that view, okay, but then, let's think again, well, what did you have before the Big Bang, right, so we had the Big Bang in the beginning, in some sense, so we got a something starts from a nothing, well, nothing comes from nothing, right, but... What, what does that mean? we say we can track it back and we can understand how this cosmos unfolded by the scientific view that we were talking about, but before that, it must have been, you call it the universe of potential, because this is the actual universe, the physics, the physical world you could call actual, it's the thing that. You know, that you should step out of the way, by the way, when you see that uh, big thing coming at you, because it could be a truck, right? You know, really, step aside is the first thing. Okay, that's that world, actual. But where does it come from? It comes from the potential. The potential contains the actual, because every actuality is one of an infinite number of potentialities, right? So, obviously, that's the greater. Now, that world of potential sure sounds a lot more like mind than it does like stuff, right? And so when you push either of these ideas to their edges, you find, ah, let's try another map that makes more sense here, right? And so I think that really suggests that we learn a flexibility and uh, to not not, try to get one answer that is it, and said, we're going to have several answers for several situations and different components.
0: Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. What, what came to mind though, Stephen, several things. One is, um, and we've been talking with the group throughout the week about the elegance and the explanatory power of integral thinking, yes. integral uh-huh. theory, where the idea is to honor and incorporate all these di- uh, different forms mm-hmm. of knowledge and, knowledge and forms of knowledge acquisition. And so... Um, I think this is exactly what you're intimating, what you're suggesting, and, and you know, I think along these lines, I want to see how it feels to you when some non-dual traditions say something like the following, and I've shared this with the group during the week, you know, because there's this proverbial kind of mind-body dualism slash problem, mm-hmm. and so does it hold water for you to assert um, that mind is? Subtle form, extremely subtle form of body, body is gross form of mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I have to say, I don't really understand how that idea works, because
1: um, it really, I I believe, that particular formulation is is a relatively recent one in Buddhism. In other non-dual traditions as well. And in particular, it, it really came to the fore in the 19th century, uh, just at the time that it was discovered that the electromagnetic spectrum included you know wide ranges of stuff that we don't see. So this is a little limited bit. Well they're there are vibrations higher and lower and all over the place. So why shouldn't these things that we can't find, you know, with a microscope shouldn't they be simply a higher vibration? And that's a perfectly fine idea. Except they're kind of details, which is higher vibrations, ultraviolet, how does that work with your cells? and Really, higher, gamma rays? You want gamma rays? You know, just... So the subtler you're getting, the more dangerous and destructive it is to forms on this level. So uh, what I would ask for testing that theory, say, well, really, what is dream stuff made of? What are the laws of the electrochemical equivalents that keep Atoms and molecules together and build up the structures as we have in, on this level, and mm-hmm. and it you know, doesn't—it's not coherent in that way. So it's got to be something else. So that says it must be. Um, if it's true, if that's a useful way of looking at it, then maybe it's not subtle in the literal. It's the same thing on the smaller particles or something like that, uh, which is of course one way we think of subtle and gross, but. Uh, maybe it's more like uh, looked at on one level, right? This kind of thing, grossly, you know. Just, uh, but when you look at it going beneath the surface, right, more sophisticated, more subtle reasoning, then you can see it in another way, and that's where are getting into the subtle bodies. But it sounds like also, uh, talking with Joseph about this exact element of the... Uh, what I call the subtle plumbing, right, of the Tibetan Buddhist system is fascinating, because what is that? Is it actually the subjective experience of the autonomic nervous system? Maybe, but it has some part in the world, and we don't right now know where, see, because the Tibetan technology is the technology of personal observation, right? And what you find out from that is subjective experience. You don't find out what's going on in your brain because you don't even have brains in the system for anything useful, right? But they find experience. So now we're in that place we talked about before where we've got these complementary systems of this wonderful, elaborate understanding of the inside of the system to see how that relates with different parts of the nervous system, which it must because it produces effects that are, at least on some level, equivalent to the electrochemical activities of the brain. So so That doesn't mean, of course, that's the only connection and that every bit of subjective experience comes from the sort of the distant uh, nervous system that we can see with microscopes. But I I, I think uh, we really should be exploring that. That's a a fascinating research question, I think.
0: So, Stephen, uh, this begs another question, of course. To what extent is there so-called objectivity? I mean, our mutual friend, Alan Wallace, wrote a book called The the Taboo of Subjectivity. And so, if in fact when we see something, and this is what the scientific community is largely based on and its emphasis on rep, you know, replication of studies and the like, um, how in fact objective can we truly be? To what extent do we actually see something sure. that is real? And you know, I, what I hang on when I think of this is Heisenberg's, I believe it's Heisenberg's yeah. statement where he says, you know, what we discover in science is not reality itself, but reality as it's revealed through our methods of investigation. Yeah. And so what, to what extent do you feel there is an, object, an objective world and objectivity, yeah. Right, yeah. even within the lens of science? Or are we kidding ourselves?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think uh, there are different senses of objective, as you mentioned there. And, and there, on one level, of, um, as in Heisenberg's quote, that is pretty much the, I'll rephrase it in a moment, that's pretty much the, the current uh, accepted view of physics in current physicists. Well, uh, it's uh, probably one of the most popular ones. And this is the idea that uh, what you, uh, let's say, light, it can behave in different ways, as a wave or a particle. So you can say, oh, really? It was, is it a wave or is it a particle? Right? It depends on the system that you're interacting with to make that measurement. And Because if you set up an experiment that, can, that causes the light to act in a wave-like way, you can observe wave-like properties. If you set up an experiment to observe a particle in nature, what do you know? And so that suggests that what really is, whatever light is, it's that X thing. And we see it in different ways, which the whole story is the experimental apparatus, what we subject it to. And I think that the thing about the collapse of the waveform having to do with consciousness, I don't think that's the level of worship. It's, it has to do with when you do something on the level of whatever you're studying, you, you force it to be in one of two states. And if that's the two choices, and, and that's what makes it look like what it does. So do we know what it looks like when you don't make it look like anything? Well, no, we couldn't. But does that mean, and here's for me the, the really challenging question, which is, so does that mean that um, the moon isn't there when nobody's looking, you know, and I just find that hard to believe that that's so, because uh, there's so many complications. But it's not that there idea. for the
0: observer, right?
1: Well, the thing is, it's not there for the observer, that's for sure, right? And, it's not, and if it's not there for any interaction with the physical world, then it's, in a sense, not a part of the physical world, right? But it is. See, it's gravitationally interacting with all the other planets and with ourselves even very subtly. So even though we don't know it, it's still there, right? And so it's like... Uh, you know, well, what do you know? Do you think, I don't know, do you think he, there's the, I don't see any back of Andrew's head. Do you think he's got a backside of the head? Let, let, let's check
0: it. I'm not showing sure no, no, no. ten. We, we blew it off this morning. It's yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So, so there are definitely questions that you can get to very quickly yeah. that nobody really knows how to even address them. and uh, people serious? Intelligent people will say things like, no, the moon isn't there when you don't look at it. Uh, Well, all right. But I I, I think most people would go for the formulation that I made, which is it wouldn't be there if nothing in any sense looked at it because that's how we define things that are part of one world is they interact with the other parts of that world. And that's how we define parts of the mind as the you know, elements of the mind that interact with the other elements of the mind. It's so like a set of interacting features. So, same ideas about physics. So, clearly, asking the questions about physics and the mind and the nature of reality or of self all leads back to this uh, impossible question because it's uh, about the whole, right? And we can't really. You know, address it it's back to the ultimate mystery, which is, how can it be, why, is there anything, you know, right, which there must be, something, whatever it is, but there's something, and that is, seems mm-hmm. like, just plain incomprehensible. You know, think about it and say, oh, okay, well, let's just do nothing, All right,
0: so there's nothing. But just, a, but, but just because it. it's incomprehensible, perhaps, and again, we're starting mm-hmm. to enter that domain where everything's in quotations. Okay. Does that in fact imply that it's unknowable? Is there in fact another apparatus yeah, of knowing, a yeah. kind yeah. of Gnosticism or whatever that could know it, but it's actually transconceptual mm-hmm. or preconceptual? That, that that could be, but it could also
1: be that what you need to learn as well as how to know is how to unknow, yeah. right? And if this is more like an unknowing, that you recognize because surely there are mysteries, and that doesn't mean that we have to know everything. Because um. If we try to know something that by doing so makes it not what it is, then we're not knowing it. Say, just to know something uh, by, if I can point to this thing that we're trying to know, say this thing is the thing we want to know, this ultimate mystery, right? Having pointed to it, I've made a distinction, I've separated from something else, and that, you know violated the rules of the game because we just said, it's the only thing. There's not two things or three or more. There's not somebody else outside it pointing to it, right? So we get ourselves, I think, in a position where we're trying to ask questions uh, that we can't answer because of the way we put them.
0: Yes, exactly. And And that's one of the things we were talking about at the outset. There were some questions that were what I call, it-based questions. Mm -hmm. And then that's where I use the Heisenberg thing, that yeah. like the Buddha would often say to some of his disciples, a particular question was directed at him, and he would say, the question is erroneously positive. Yes. Because yes. the very way you ask the question already sends the mind in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. And as it goes down that rabbit hole, perhaps it's the wrong rabbit hole.
1: Exactly, exactly so. So I think the, the main thing we can expect, um, we optimists, Uh, from science and spirituality, there's more of a a mutual understanding and cooperation coming out of that knowledge doesn't come just from experiment, Mr. Scientist. Right? That's one way of knowledge, but there's also experience. And these two together is really the whole of our way of knowledge that can be shared objectively with others. And that, I believe, is how progress can be made That's sort of why I'm, you know, if I have a religion, it's something like science as it should be. It's the idea of a shared endeavor of seeking to attain what objective knowledge we can, which is not easy, right? But that's the endeavor, to share this and develop it, and we hope for the better of humanity.
0: And I think this is a really important point, Stephen, because when we talk about things like emptiness, which we've been trying to circumambulate here, one of the near enemy, uh, enemies of this is like nihilism, or thinking that right. reality is some kind of ontological yeah. sliding scale, yeah. that at some point it just doesn't, so to speak, bottom out. Yeah. And so I think the challenge yeah. here is what in fact, if there is a bottom, yeah. what is that bottom? Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. well, and, and, and that is again one of those questions that is ultimate, think about big Bang. all right, that's the beginning. Okay, now there's a thing before it, right? another one, right? And before that, okay, yeah, here we are, turtles all the way down, right? Because, well, I mean, there's another one before that doesn't was the first one. But I, I think the way out of that is, as I suggested, that you're not going more the same, but it's going from actuality to potentiality. And that's a different level of, of existence. It's not really existence being, maybe, but... Uh, we are going to uh, find new ways of addressing these problems, certainly, but but the understanding of the basic mysteries is yeah. ancient.
0: And so here's another question that, that may seem philosophical, but yeah. I think it's, it's extremely practical. And that is this notion of, and, and pardon the, the term, but in a certain way we've been talking about the plastic nature of reality, mm-hmm. plasticity. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of traffic these days with neuroplasticity Mm -hmm. and the inner traditions. I often talk about naughty plasticity, that the subtle body is also plastic. But one of the things that this um, evokes for me is my term here, ontic plasticity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, how cooperative, how plastic is the phenomenal world? And in fact, is it kosher to say that we don't see things from perspectives that things mm-hmm. actually are perspectives. Mm-hmm. Because if we, if, if we see things from perspectives, that mm-hmm. seems to imply right. a subvert mm-hmm. kind of representationalism. Right. Right? There's still something being represented. Yeah. Yeah. But is it, in yeah. fact, just merely perspective itself?
1: Yeah, well, yeah uh, that, that is exactly a coherent point of view, coming out of the,
0: the, the,
1: remember when we had these two global maps of, are things there anyway, even if you don't perceive them, or are they not? And that assumes not, right? And, and, uh, but part of the problem, remember, is that any one of those two views, when you just look at it to completion, it doesn't really hold up without a tear here or there. So uh, I'd say, sure, that sounds like a, a useful concept to explore. Um, but the thing I, I'd like to address from what, what you just mentioned there, and that is relevant to us here, I think, is dream bodies, subtle bodies, and physical bodies, because I think that this is something that is more uh, complicated than it should be. And, and please correct me if, if, if I'm missing something. But it seems to me what is normally called subtle body. Well, or even several subtle bodies in some systems, but it is the thing that we experience in dreams. In dreams, we're in some body, and that body does things in a dream world, apparently, right? And that body is not the same as a physical body, right? Because it's somewhere other than where the physical body is. So we say that. But rather than putting it as it's made of different stuff Mm -hmm. and all that, say, but it's a... It's a mind body, Phenom- a, body Phenom- a, rep- I mean, a body that you are, are, have made in your mind that has some relationship to your actual body. That's why it looks like you, know, you fly and have wings, you fly like this, right? With that. It's actually it's actually called yeah. Manomaya, made of mind. Yes, yeah. and, and I think that's right. And, of course, what we don't know is how does mind make that, right? And does it make it, you know, the neural networks or what? You know, it doesn't have to, by the way, make it only through neural networks just because it might for our brains. I mean, there may be many different ways to implement uh, the form of mind. And I think that must be so, that why... Otherwise, we're saying... The way humans are, and the way we think about things, and our minds and our, the association with our brains, is it. There's nothing else in the vast you know, multitude of multiverses uh, that is different. Uh, no, oh, and I think there's room for that, some kind of a mind before we've got any kind of a body. And that's intriguing, but it's, it's an open possibility, to actually say, how does it work? And that's all. I think we should be willing to you know, every idea, uh, hypothesis uh, needs a kind of checking. It serves checking uh, with either common sense, which is sometimes an adequate goal, or uh, by experiment. And that's the point of experiments and science: is to determine whether your guess is consistent with what else you believe to be so. And the same thing should be true on the inner world, because if we don't test our inner views, then we get a mixture of truth and, and imagination, yeah. right? Where, because we all know that we're wrong about things. We don't know we're dreaming, for example, until we do, right? You know, so we think something that's not right about it. So that's... Yeah. If we can get better at that and sharing that information, I think uh, we can make more I think that's, even what, more that's
0: what makes you yeah. so unique, Stephen. We've been, you know, one of the main narratives of our week here has been this theme of openness. Mm-hmm. Meditation is habituation to openness. Openness is a synonym for emptiness. And so your your capacity um, to remain agnostic, I mean, the power of the open question, yeah. I think is, is formidable. And I'd see near enemies on both sides. And what you were alluding to yeah. in terms of, like, the sliding scale, and, and this is a yeah. little... Um, jingle that I often say is that it's really important to have an open mind, but if your mind is too open, your brains right. will fall out. Right. Yes. And this is what happens when minds are too open. Uh, it's yes. just like whatever. And so up, so right. the sliding scale, there has to be yes, some metric yes. of reality. Yes, yes. Yeah. And,
1: and, and there could be too much and not enough. And that's, that is one of our challenges yes. is getting it right.
0: Yeah. So. And so as we start to close this up, You are also unique as a scientist because not only do you engage in classic third-person so-called objective science, but in the work that you do as a phenomenologist, you work with with first-person science. And so, to get more personal, um, it's rare for people to both be subject and object of the science that they do. And so, with that in mind, and for many of us here, we've heard intimations of this, but some of our listeners um, perhaps have not, To what extent does your science continue to inform and transform your life? I mean, when you leave the laboratory, do you leave your insights in the sleep lab, or are you somehow able to bring them into your life and actually help them, use them to change the way you look at reality altogether?
1: That's
0: a deep question and difficult to answer in a short time,
1: but I'll I'll make an attempt, and, and that is when I first started learning lucid dreaming, it was for a scientific purpose, having to do with, I needed to have someone who could uh, have lucid dreams in the laboratory and uh, make signals and marks and the records and things like that, and I couldn't find some, so I'm going to learn to do this so I can do that. Now what happened as I developed that ability, and had more and more lucid dreams, is I found that many of the dreams were very educational, personally, that they were teaching me something, and that they had uh, a wonderful um, path in them, and that that I was finding that by the further practice of it, that this was an area that could combine two of the major uh, directions in my life, one as a scientist, exploring the state, which we knew very little about, and the other was my inner practice. It was a way that I could uh, develop and make it a spiritual practice, essentially the same idea with the dream yoga. It, but it just occurred to me that this is actually, this is both an inner and an outer path for me, and that was uh, very fortunate and surprising to me that that was so. And, of course, it is very different from the... uh, Science has various um, standards and prejudices, like every other social group. And one of the ones they have is that it's not objective to be a subject. You shouldn't be your own subject because it's bad. And I prefer to say, well, if the subject, the topic, is consciousness then I certainly want to see the first-person evidence myself in addition to getting reports and data from the outside of me and others. Just because, how can it be that uh, you're going to know what you're studying if you don't examine it that way? So I, I think that's an example of, of a prejudice that has to be overcome for a science of consciousness to develop, is that, of course, people, scientists, should be observing inside their dreams and their meditation practices, etc. Because that's one of the primary ways we understand what is happening. Then you get ideas of what experiments can be done to verify or test different possibilities. But if you never do that, you really don't know what the
0: topic is even. Yeah, and that's it's what also Alan talks about is the emergence of contemplative scientists, yes. which in the traditional academy is almost an oxymoron. Yes. How can that actually yeah. be? Yeah. Yeah. And so in that regard, you know, you've, yeah. you've been a real pioneer, yeah. and I've shared also yeah. this yeah. little jingle with the group, and maybe your life can attest to it if you turn around. Yeah. You can always tell who the pioneers are by all the arrows in their back, Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. shot by yeah. those behind them. And yeah. so finally, yeah. you know, in closing, I, want, I wondered um, if you could make a comment on what I started the program with, a couple days ago this really compelling quote from Matthew Walker in his book Light we Sleep.
1: Thanks for listening. You can listen to the full interview by joining nightclub lucid dreaming and dream yoga community just one dollar for your first 30 days. Try it out click the website link in our profile to get started